planet Earth 66 million years ago. We now know so much about a world that was ruled by the dinosaurs. And the latest imaging technology enables us to bring them all to life. If you spent your life filming real animals, of course, you do huge amounts of scientific research to understand the stories behind what they're doing, to interpret what they're doing. But I had absolutely no idea that you'd have to multiply that by about 10 when you're dealing with animals that no longer exist. Because, of course, you can't watch them and observe them. You can't interpret directly what you're seeing. And it's been a fascinating, sort of almost mind-blowing journey to do it. This is Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast. An Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios Natural History Unit. I'm your host, Mike Gunton, an executive producer of the series. All episodes are available now on Apple TV+. I've been a wildlife filmmaker with the BBC's Natural History Unit for more than 35 years. And one of the most exciting things for me is when brand new science creates an opportunity to show people something they've never seen before. But making prehistoric play takes us to a whole new level. In the last episode, with our series producer Tim Walker and some of the team, we revealed how we work our TV magic. Now Tim and our lead scientific advisor, Dr. Darren Naish, are back to uncover the science behind the shows. The challenge of producing a science-led dinosaur series is also what makes it fun. It requires hunting for clues and evidence of these prehistoric animals and using those to piece together the puzzle of what they were like. How do we go about scientifically creating animals that we'll never be able to see? To do this, I get to work with the person whose dinosaur know-how amazes me every day. My name is Darren Naish and I'm the Chief Scientific Consultant for the Apple TV Plus series Prehistoric Planet. Darren's an incredible paleontologist and total dino nerd. But the reason he's so good at leading us through the science is because of his additional knowledge of living animals. That's a key point for understanding how science leads our programme. We can't just rely on digging up fossils. Think about everything you see in Prehistoric Planet, the way dinosaurs look, the sounds they make, the animals interacting. A tiny proportion of that kind of information is present in the fossil record. But think about the day-to-day -day lives of animals, what they do in terms of like resting poses and socialising and the things like courtship and uh, hunting behaviour. There's hardly any information that the fossil record provides us. We have to portray those things how are we going to do that? What's our base of information? And it is the living world. So you have to understand what living animals do, what the air quotes rules are about you know, what living animals do, what sort of body language is available to extinct species based on what the living ones do. So we tap into the science of living animals and of course the fossil record too, telling us key details on the structure of dinosaurs and what their environment was like. But more on those details later. People say we're in the golden age of paleontology. More people are making more discoveries about dinosaurs faster than ever before. 
And you might not believe this, but a large part of that has to do with Jurassic Park, sparking the imagination of future scientists three decades ago. But while this tremendous rate of discovery puts a wealth of information at our disposal, it also means that the science is continually moving and changing. Some things we know confidently, and some things we're still trying to figure out. Trying to construct our best guesses based on traces of evidence. So that's the other thing you need to know about how science leads our series. We made some tough calls. I totally do feel the pressure of having to make a hard decision on this. On reconstructing the life appearance, behaviour, etc. of these extinct animals. Because you can't start you know, your CG work saying, well, there's this angle and there's this angle and there's this counter-argument. What do we want to go for? No, we had to go into this already with a hardline opinion. There's a general debate about how conservative we should be when speculating on how these dinosaurs looked and acted. Some people say we shouldn't speculate on anything we don't know for certain, whilst others say we should embrace the idea that dinosaurs are animals and animals have weirder and wilder features than we can dream up. So dinosaurs would have as well. And we should show those strange air sacs and colourful arms, even if we'll end up getting some of it wrong. We tried to go right in the middle of those two approaches while still showing you the awesomeness of these creatures. We want to deliberately give the audience the idea that you have never thought about this. This is a real possibility for these animals. He doesn't have huge antlers, nor a spectacular tail. But he does have a pair of tiny, apparently useless arms. And each has a ball and socket joint at its base that enables him to move them independently. One of the things that I hope is a take-home point for, for viewers is you've kind of been given a view of prehistoric animals I think that's really boring, that like they just all they do is fight and roar at each other. Whereas, like, what we understand about these animals, and one of the things that those of us who work on them talk about a lot, is how flamboyant and over the top they were. It's like if you go and watch a displaying group of animals, wherever they are, where you see like a lek where there's loads of displaying birds, it's like that's an incredible sort of visual and, you know, incredible sensory event. And in the modern world, for most of us, those are kind of rare things. You're lucky if you get to see one. But if you were a time traveller in Cretaceous times, that was the norm for that world. It was like over the top in terms of these displaying, showy, flamboyant animals. They're really off the charts in terms of all of this stuff. So how did we create these dinosaurs that were flamboyant in their appearance, sound and behaviour? We reached across multiple scientific disciplines and even commissioned our own studies. So let's break it down piece by piece, starting with the way they look. So if we want to reconstruct the life appearance of an extinct animal, first of all, we assume that we're dealing with an animal where we've got a pretty good handle on its overall anatomy. So, of course, a lot of fossil animals, they're known from fragments, Let's not worry about those for now. Let's talk about the ones where we've got near-complete skeletons. A good example is Tyrannosaurus rex. We've got 
multiple examples of near-complete skeletons. So we fully agree on what the articulated skeleton was like. We know what the posture and pose of the animal was like based on the way the bones fit together. The musculature, we've got a good handle on that also, not just because we have bony lumps and bumps and scars on the bones which show where the muscles go, but also because the exact positioning and anatomy of muscles across reptiles, birds, mammals is fairly consistent. If you understand the anatomy of, say, lizards, crocodilians, birds, you can really confidently reconstruct the musculature of a dinosaur like Tyrannosaurus. We also have the fossil record telling us some dinosaurs truly had feathers. It's not brand new science, but it does challenge our Hollywood image of dinosaurs. Velociraptor. Their bodies are kept warm by feathers, but they can't fly. There's this group of dinosaurs that look birdy, Velociraptor-type dinosaurs. We know for absolute certainty those guys have got true feathers, just like those of birds. They've got full plumage, head to toe in some cases. Some of them are in cool environments. They've got feathers all the way down to their toes, all the way to the tips of their tails. And those are true complex feathers. That group of animals is called Manoraptor and Theropods. Lightweight bodies and feathered arms help them to control their descent. And their broad tails assist them in keeping their balance. When it comes to the outside of most dinosaurs, we don't have as clear-cut answers. I would say the part of the appearance of dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals that people pay most attention to is the stuff that's like right on the outside of the animal, which is often the least knowable part. It's the least understood part. But even if we can't know these details for certain, it doesn't mean we just make it up. We keep using a scientific approach to guide our imaginations. My name's Mark Whitten. I'm a paleoartist and paleontologist, and my job on Prehistoric Planet was creature design and some consultancy. When I was growing up, we had no idea about the colours of extinct animals because it's just something that, as far as we were concerned, it just did not fossilise. But in the last decade, maybe the last sort of 15 years or so, that idea has been completely turned on its head and it is no longer simply guesswork to deduce the colour of an extinct animal. If we find a dinosaur and it has its skin preserved, if we look at it with high enough magnification, what we might find are structures known as melanosomes. And melanosomes are pigment cells. When we find certain arrangements, we can say, oh, okay, so on a living animal, if we find the melanosomes arranged in this way, that indicates some red colour or maybe some black or something else. And we can then look at the fossil ones and go, oh, look, we've seen the same arrangement. That's not to say, however, that this is something we can do for all animals. And to be honest, the vast majority of fossil species do not have the right quality of preservation that we can deduce their colour. So you really need the best quality fossils for this. You need things that have got all their feathers preserved, all their hair preserved. When we don't have that direct fossil evidence of colour, what we tend to do is we look at living animals Mainly, we think about things like camouflage and what sort of lifestyle does this animal have? Where does it live? What sort of camouflage would suit it? Because it's not just a case of all camouflage works the same. So things like the stripes on a tiger, they hide it really well in, in a wooded setting with lots of grass, but they wouldn't do very well if it was out on a savanna. Most animals are coloured uh, in ways that keep them inconspicuous to hide them from predators. But of course, we do also know that there are 
plenty of animals out there which buck that trend and that color themselves for visual display. And the question is, when is it appropriate to apply that to an extinct animal? And when is it not appropriate to do that? Mark thought through all these questions when designing prehistoric planet's pterosaurs, the flying reptiles. Take one of the many odd-looking pterosaurs as an example, the Astarchids. These are the big kind of giraffe pterosaurs with the long necks and the very long arms. I mean, their, their heads are maybe three times longer than their bodies are. Hatsacopteryx stands 15 feet tall. They have a wing finger, which is another two and a half meters long. And that, of course, gets folded up just next to the arm when the animal's walking around. They're just so bizarre. And trying to turn a pile of fossil bones into something that looks like a, a successful, competent animal and not just a big pile of sticks is very difficult for pterosaurs. This is the heaviest animal ever to fly. And there is nowhere else here where it can open its gigantic wings, which are over 30 feet across. You really run with the ludicrousness of them. But the approach we took for designing them was, no, no, let's, let's ground them. Let's actually try and make them look realistic. So our terrestrial Ajdarchids, things that, which are stalking terrestrial prey, they're eating things like small dinosaurs, small, uh, small animals of various kinds. So let's give them some colours which would camouflage them against their prey. Let's give them colours which would help them remain inconspicuous from, from large predators. And the same goes for our ocean-going pterosaurs. So sort of we look at things like seabirds, we look at ocean-going marine birds today, and what sort of colours do they have? And let's put them on our pterosaurs. So even though some of the pterosaurs we've designed have got these very elaborate head crests. We haven't taken that as a license to just get out every single colouring pencil in our, in our pencil case. I think that's the thing with designing pterosaurs. Take the ridiculousness of them and put it into a package where they look, where they look viable, you know, where they don't look too unrealistic. And that's the challenge with getting them correct. And at the premiere of the first series of Prehistoric Planet, Mark got to see his pterosaurs for the first time on the big screen. Looking at them on the screen, it was like, wow, that's actually what I suggested these things should look like. In many cases, right down to the specific colour schemes that I designed. That just never happens. And it was actually a little bit emotional to see that. It's like, oh, wow, you actually had that much faith in what I did to put it on the screen. So we build the appearance of these dinosaurs and tell you what they might look like. Then we need to tell you what they sound like. We told you in episode two that dinosaurs didn't really roar like we see in the movies. When we design these sounds, Darren suggests the sounds of living animals that can be merged and twisted into something that might be a dinosaur. We mostly don't have like hard specific thinkings on what these animals were like it is again mostly based on analogy i often was guided by what do these animals remind me of in terms of gross anatomy in terms of habitat and what are the capabilities open to them in the very first sequence in the opening episode of prehistoric planet we see and hear baby tyrannosaurs swimming across the sea with their father to make these young dinosaur sounds, we originally tried working with sounds of crocodiles. 
but they felt too one-dimensional and a little obvious. So we ended up with a combination of bird calls that we pitched and slowed down. Like this common starling with its pitch shifted. And this cactus wren that we slowed down. And with other clips like this, we tried to make believable baby tyrannosaurs. What's fascinating about this process was not only the lack of roaring, but the downright alien strangeness of the sounds we were coming up with. But as Darren kept saying, these aren't mammals, and they must not sound like mammals. This strict no mammal mandate was like many of the sounds that we should be hearing from dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus. They should be kind of deep, booming, they should have a strange metallic quality and something that's alien to us, so many dinosaurs, it goes for Tyrannosaurus. They're very airy animals, they're full of air sacs. So when you hear sounds moving around inside them, you should get the sense of this bellows-like movement of air going from one chamber to another. So we've let the science guide how our animals look and how they sound. Now we need to show them doing something. We've already talked about the fact that we know dinosaurs lived complex lives, hunting, foraging, mating. But unlike when we're filming wild animals, we need to create the storylines around these events ourselves. And behind every one of these stories is an enormous trail of research. Let's talk you through how we made one of our scenes by using science to drive the speculative. We are always, of course, trying to push the envelope. We're always trying to show something new and surprising that people think about and be entertained by. In season one, we find ourselves in the middle of a forest fire. And we see a truodontid, a six-foot-long feathered dinosaur as part of a theropod group. Most animals flee from the flames. But for some, the disaster creates opportunities. We learn that we're watching the truodontid hunt, and not just using any hunting method. The truodontid drops a stick that's on fire. It's trying to intentionally spread the fire to help it catch prey. Anything that spreads the fire creates more opportunities for the most ingenious Arctic hunter of its time. For its size, its brain is one of the largest on the planet. People have always said truodontids are smart dinosaurs. Darren, tell us what that means. Any discussion about an aspect of behaviour, and specifically behaviour that relates to intelligence, has got decades of backstory to it. We've known for decades now that some dinosaurs, and in particular the more bird-like predatory dinosaurs, their brains are relatively large, which is not to say they're anywhere in the same ballpark as monkeys and other primates. They're not in the same ballpark as, as parrots and corvids. But as animals go in general, their brains aren't that small. And we also know from the living world that many animals that we've conventionally kind of derided as sort of small brain simpletons are in actual fact pretty capable. But of course, the intelligence of extinct animals is still speculation. We know what the structure of the brain was like, but we don't know what the exact soft tissue structure of the brain interior was like. And it's been argued that they might have had a way more 
densely packed like anatomy of the cells associated with, with thought and stuff than people had thought before. And a claim has been made that, in actual fact, quite a lot of extinct dinosaurs were way more intelligent than people had imagined before. That, that proposal is problematic and it's, it's arguable, but I think the sort of broad take-home thing for it is, yeah, some extinct dinosaurs might have been way smarter and more adaptable than we've conventionally thought. And if that's true, well then, could they have done quite sophisticated things? At the far's edge, druodontids gather to prey on animals that are trying to escape the flames. It's been argued, you know, seriously, that a list of living bird species know fire. They know what it is, and they have some concept of, like, what you can do with fire and what uses it has if you're a predatory animal. Some birds deliberately hold their wings over fire. Why? It's not entirely clear. To kill off parasites or to change the shape of their feathers or what have you, to fumigate their feathers. But it's also been argued that some birds deliberately spread fire in order to basically create new hunting opportunities for themselves. Success. If there's a burn over here on the left and I take a burning stick and put it here on the right, then the animals on the right that are hiding in the undergrowth are going to have to run away from the fire and I can see them. I'll be the first one to see them and catch them. It's been argued that this is the case for several predatory birds. People have reported seeing kites and falcons do exactly this in Australia. We also know that animals need to fit into their environment and the prehistoric planet was a fiery place. One of the key things about the Cretaceous world that makes it really interesting is it was a fire-prone world. And we know this for absolute certainty from the fossil record, mostly from the amount of charcoal in the fossil record. Fires were really common. So if you were a dinosaur living in a forest or in a kind of scrubby area, you would be familiar on a day-to-day -day basis with the fact that there's always fires. They must have kind of co-evolved with it they would have known how to use fire, how to avoid fire when necessary. We've already talked about how we use the rules of living animals for guidance, for appearance, to sounds and behaviours. But let's break down how we do that exactly. Because we don't just look at the appearance or the behaviours of any animals. We use a technique called phylogenetic bracketing. We know that birds are living dinosaurs, and we know that distant, distant cousins of dinosaurs are crocodilians. So those two living groups bracket our extinct group on the family tree. So that's what phylogenetic bracketing is. You look at the living relatives that surround your extinct one. So now think of any single question you might have about an extinct animal where the fossil record hasn't given you an answer. Does an extinct dinosaur have eyelids? Crocodiles and alligators have got eyelids, birds have got eyelids. So we would say, yes, we can be pretty confident that our extinct dinosaur would have eyelids. So when it comes to behaviour, we use this bracketing technique uh, often as a rough guide. So, for example, in terms of parenting behaviour and postures that animals adopted to send specific signals, you can use bracketing to say this kind of posture would have been adopted. When it came to explain and demonstrate these behaviours to the team, Darren had some creative techniques. My name's Rebecca Bangay. 
uh, known to the crew as Bex, and I'm an assistant producer on Prehistoric Planet. So one thing we noticed when uh, many Zoom calls with Darren was that he was surrounded by toys. We're not talking any toys, this would be dinosaurs. They looked like there were hundreds, maybe he's even got into the thousands. And they came in really handy sometimes. If you ask him a question about how animals might interact and he'd reach out and, oh, I've got this somewhere. And then you'd have this crazy moment over Zoom where you've got these two plastic dinosaurs, you know, in interacting. And it helped explain the science to us. Let's say we're discussing the fighting behaviour of Triceratops. Every year, large numbers of these giants gather in clearings. I am holding two 1970s-era plastic Invicta Triceratops figures. And they're, they're the white ones that you're meant to paint yourself, so they're very valuable, very rare, but be quite careful with them. Triceratops has got these very long supra-orbital horns, and it's got this frill, bony frill over there, you know, sticking backwards and upwards from the back of the skull. This young male looks to be in prime condition. Showing off his spectacular meter-long horns and his colorful head frill. So in fighting, if you've got horns or antlers, you know, we know this from living animals, the game is basically to overpower and hurt your opponent. The six-ton males fight and display their strength. So I can use these toys to say, that animal is going to try and reach round the frill and stab the opponent in the sort of shoulder region. How does that interaction actually happen? Well, as you can see with these toys, I can try and reconstruct this sort of behavior. The stakes are high and neither is willing to back down. Darren shows with his toys that if one Triceratops manages to get the horn around the other's frill, they've won. The opponent can't physically do the same. For the loser, the mating season is over. There you go. That's science. <laughs> I joke, but this has been done. A ceratopsian expert, an expert on horned dinosaurs called Andy Farkey, did actually publish a technical paper on possible combat behaviour in Triceratops using these exact figures. When we show these animals, they're never living in isolation. They're interacting with the rest of the natural world. So now comes the next part of the puzzle, building that environment. We had to know whether these environments were warm, cold, what kind of plants would be there, what kind of natural disasters could take place. So we got together a team that could tell us what that climate and environment was like 66 million years ago. They built the most complex and most complete weather map of the Maastrichtian world, the Maastrichtian, this final stage of the Lake Cretaceous that we're interested in for Prehistoric Planet. And uh, they basically incorporated Oh my God, absolutely everything you could think of. Rising summer temperatures fuel electric storms hundreds of miles wide. Here in the Deccan, 
These seasonal storms cause a shift in the wind direction. Robert Spicer is a paleobotanist and geologist who brought expertise in vegetation and geology. Paul Valdez represented the geology research and Alexander Farnsworth worked with both of them to create a climate model. I'm Alexander Farnsworth. I'm from the University of Bristol School of Geographical Sciences and I am a paleoclimate model and meteorologist. Yep, paleoclimate model meteorologist is a real job. We try and predict and understand and assess uncertainties exactly what the climate and weather was like maybe a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, 10 million years ago, to try and understand exactly how the world and the climate and the weather has worked and changed. There are a few things that we already knew about the climate during the Maastrichtian time period. That's the slice of time in the Cretaceous where prehistoric planet takes place. So it was a much, much warmer climate than what we had today. Just to put that into a bit of perspective, you might have the sort of global mean annual temperatures might be about anywhere between 5 and 10 degrees higher than what we have today. So it was a much, much warmer world compared to what we've known. It was a much warmer, much wetter environment, much stormier environment. Alex is able to make weather forecasts of the past. To make these computer models as accurate as possible, we need to give them an incredible amount of data. So many factors shape our climate today, and we need to recreate that past world as best as we can. For instance, we know that today the continents are on a very different uh, configuration to what they were 66 million years ago. Back into the Cretaceous, some of those continents are a bit more further together. So first we need to make sure that is taken into account because that can have a very big impact on types of ocean and atmospheric circulation, how heat and energy is transported around the world, and that's how the climate behaves. So once we have that, we then need to think about, well, you know, what about the topography? You also need to know what the bathymetry was. You know, what did the sea floor look like? How bumpy it was? Were there big ocean ridges no longer there? The Rockies may or may not have been as high as they were in today's topography. Here, powerful movements deep in the Earth's crust are beginning to raise the Rocky Mountains. Then there are proxy observations that we can call on. That's physical evidence that we can work with, like ice cores that trap carbon dioxide, or CO2. We do have lots of what we call proxy observations, the sort of paleo-observations, encapsulating these sort of geochemical signatures and the geology and the rocks and or plant fossils. We can get a good first-order degree exactly of how CO2 varied during these sort of time periods. Likewise, we know the sun 66 million years ago was weaker. You know, it wasn't giving as much solar energy into our, into our Earth system as it was today. So there's a whole host of information that we try to give our best idea of what a Maastrichtian time period looked like. Warm air rises and becomes charged electrically. And that creates frequent and violent lightning storms. Fundamentally, the sort of physical and biological processes that sort of govern the climate system as we know it today, they do not change. 
first law of thermodynamics, these Navier-Stokes equations, which determine exactly how fluid and density, temperature, all work on a sort of rotating sphere. All of these fundamental equations are run through this client model on a big, big supercomputer. These supercomputers today can do upwards of around 14,000 trillion calculations per second. It sounds large, but you really do need that sort of computing power, especially to run the latest generation climate models, because they are doing all these calculations for huge areas all the way throughout the depth of the atmosphere, the depth of the ocean, looking at the chemistry in the atmosphere as well. I was astounded by the fact that in some cases, the team could even tell us exactly how thick they thought the ice was at the poles. And here's something that I'm really proud of. This specific model, commissioned for Prehistoric Planet, ended up being groundbreaking. It was much higher resolution than previous models, meaning it could look at the climate for an area as small as a 60-kilometer grid box. This offered unprecedented detail we hadn't heard of before. And they were able to solve a problem that had kept showing up in previous paleo models. There was a big, big problem, which has been a big problem for most paleo models around the world, what we call the, the cold pole paradox. The cold pole paradox. We've long had proxy evidence that the poles weren't as cold in the Cretaceous as they are today. For example, we have well-dated fossil evidence, a proxy observation of palm trees living at these polar latitudes. It must have been much warmer and wetter in the polar regions than it is today. But previous paleoclimate models showed Arctic and Antarctic temperatures that were far too cool to match this fossil record. Some in the past may have been suggesting much freezing, colder temperatures, uh, lots of snow perennial throughout the year. Now, we know that's not likely because we had these big forests growing at those high latitudes. We also know that there were crocodiliomorpha fossils being found there, sort of akin to crocodiles today. And we know crocodiles today don't like living in very cold, wintry conditions. But for this study, Alex and the team ran eight independently verified datasets through the supercomputers and saw what kind of climate they came out with. And one of those matched the proxy observations. We had one that was almost a bullseye for us, which matched so much of the proxy observations, it gave us our best idea exactly what going forward to use. With this advanced climate model, Alex and the team were able to tell us what was happening in the climate 66 million years ago. We could tell them that we have a dinosaur in a certain location and they would tell us the weather to expect in that location. Was there a big storm happening in this sort of place in this period where we found these fossils? Well, we can go to the climate model and use exactly that, have a look at the storm systems. It let us tell surprising stories. The big snowstorm that you had in some of the sequence down in Antarctica. Now again, most people wouldn't be thinking that in this very warm, super greenhouse climate in Maastrichtian, what, was there snow? That's, that looks a bit crazy. It's far too warm for any of that. But you know, we know today that even in, in the UK, we still get snow. If you were to look at a million years in the future, you'd probably look at a, the geological evidence for the UK and would suggest, oh, it's, the climate's fairly warm. It's not really gonna get much snow in that sort of period. So using the climate model can really help unpick not just the climate, but this weather signal. So although snow wasn't always common in Antarctica, it did happen throughout the year. And when you did get large snow, 
snowstorms, they tended to be very, very big and intense. The blizzard worsens. For these ancient adversaries, in these conditions, the battle will be resolved not by surprise, but by strategy. You know, you can imagine this is important just looking at dinosaur behavior, because, you know, especially if you're in Antarctica, you know, it's not, there's no real easy way of getting off this continent. So if you've been living there for millions and millions of years, you're probably going to be quite well adapted to these sorts of climates, which means that, you know, dinosaurs down in the furthest reaches of Antarctica, which have very low light regimes, especially in the winter, where there might be no sunlight at all. And you can imagine the sort of these sort of predator-prey dynamics, certain evolutionary traits appearing to sort of deal with this sort of climate and weather in these regions. This groundbreaking study gave us more insights into extremes. We knew the Cretaceous was stormy, but now we have a new idea of just how stormy. It's not just the unrelenting power of the sun that makes deserts so inhospitable. So too do winds. Here in Central Asia, they rip across the landscape, drying out the land still further and uprooting vegetation. Typically today, the strongest hurricane storm system you can get reaches to about 156 to 180 miles per hour. If we were looking at damage, that would flatten houses, flatten most things. But when we're looking into the restriction, what we were suggesting was wow, these storms might be even more intense. We hypothesize, and this is something we're working on currently, that there might even have been what we're calling a category six storm. That would be in excess of the sort of 180, 185 miles an hour. So really, really destructive. So you can imagine any dinosaurs living in these sort of coastal regions when these storm systems coming through, it's gonna be incredibly disruptive and destructive to them. Large dinosaurs keep on the move to try to cope with these harsh conditions. You don't want to be caught in a storm system if you're swimming as a T-Rex, that's for sure. And we already knew the Cretaceous was hot, but now we have a new understanding of exactly how hot. In the Badlands, the relief of cooler nights is all too soon followed by the return of the intense heat of the sun's rays. The mean annual temperature globally may have been 5 to 10 degrees hotter than today. Now, when you think about it, or oh, maybe that doesn't sound too much, but, you know, that's an aggregate of everywhere around the world. What we actually show, if you start looking regionally into certain parts, let's say, for instance, in the tropics, in certain desert or arid regions, you're getting daily temperatures that could be easily in excess of 60 or 70 degrees for large parts of some of the terrestrial world. Any water here soaks away or evaporates in seconds. This is one of the driest places on Earth. If you're a dinosaur, trying to deal with these sort of extremes in temperatures can be quite difficult. Without water, no animal can survive. Yet this is home to these young Tarchia. So again, maybe you have certain adaptations to do this. Dark patches protect the Tarchia's eyes from the glaring sun. 
Maybe you try and migrate further away during the seasons when these really hot temperatures occur. Maybe you estivate the sort of uh, sort of warm weather type of hibernation. We relied on Alex and the team to make sure our environments were firmly based in science. But a really cool feature of working with all these scientists is that the show started to drive some science itself. It was a really fun process, I have to say. As scientists, we can sometimes be a bit tunnel visioned of looking at sort of things. But, you know, the production team might come up to us one day and ask us really obscure questions we had never ever considered and i think that's kind of one of the big outcomes of the series as well it's uh it's not just about telling what we think it's about trying to find new science coming out of it science is a continually moving process and paleontologists like darren are trying to take this new information about the environment and figure out everything it could mean for the animals who lived in it we're still in a really early phase in terms of working out what the thermal budgets, the thermal behaviour of lots of dinosaurs were like. It's been thought for a long time that by virtue of the fact that many of them are big, many dinosaurs would have been insulated from temperature extremes. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's like, you know, over 30 degrees C all the time, because dinosaurs won't warm up that much because they're so big, it takes a long time for the heat to build up enough that it's a problem for the brain and whatnot. And then when it cools down at night, you can dump that heat. Well, that's true to a degree. We know that big animals do work in that way. We know that elephants do. But what about places where it's hilariously hot? Like, even at night, it's 30 degrees C. How do dinosaurs deal with that? This is the sound of Tarchia's very own air conditioning system. Their large nose cools the air as it leaves the body, condensing and so conserving valuable water with every breath. It allows them to survive long periods without drinking as they search for a meal. Do they have special heat dumping adaptations or heat, I don't know, heat protection mechanisms or something? I don't have, I don't have a tidy answer on this. But in terms of, of heat, it seems that the dinosaur air sac system, this like strange system that's quite alien to us, means that they are good at uh, not warming up as much as animals like mammals do. And it also seems that the incredible complexity of dinosaur scales means that they had an ability to lose a lot more heat over the whole of their surface area than animals like us. Scientists are continuing to uncover these kind of details and building stronger scientific cases about dinosaurs every day. As I've already said, we're in the golden age of paleontology. As we were making the show, New research was coming out every week. It's one of the things that made the series so fun and challenging to work on. And I happen to know that it's one of the things that disrupted Darren's sleep at night. Right now is the worst time, <laughs> in a sense, the worst time to be making a TV show about a subject as fast moving, as constantly updated as the science of, of dinosaurs and other animals. It's like constant tweaks and we agree over time on more and more stuff for sure but it does mean that specific details are like, don't get too you know, committed to that specific detail because that could well be shown to be wrong. That's the nature of the business. This was a reality of producing the series. We were making decisions on every aspect of these dinosaurs, including how they walked, 
So we had to choose a gait for our four-legged dinosaurs, the gait being exactly how they place their feet. We originally didn't choose the transverse gait, but we didn't have a lot of information to work with when we made season one. Then, just after the first season wrapped, a new paper came out. My team, they used computer modeling to actually get a gait of a sauropod to match tracks, and they showed that the transverse gait was almost certainly correct. So myself and the animators, we had a discussion. It's like, can we change it to the transverse gait? And despite everything you've ever heard about sort of people doing behind-the-scenes TV work, they were like, well, we don't want to do what just looks good. We do want to do with what you think is right scientifically. So if you pay sufficient attention, and no, one, no one's actually noticed this to my knowledge or no one's commented on it, some of the dinosaurs in season two have a different gait from how they did in season one. When I saw the final realization of the animals that we'd spent so long recreating on the big screen. It was a really emotional moment. It was almost akin to the first time you see a new child. You know, as a father of two, I've had that emotion twice over. I had the same kind of feeling when I saw the dinosaurs realised after years and years of working on them, it was like the birthing of a new child. And I know that Darren has similar thoughts. Imagine that as a kid, you drew something and then imagine that someone then took that away and turned it into like a statue and put it in like a famous museum or an art gallery. I think you'd be like so emotionally affected by that. It's like, wow, this thing that I helped bring to life, I'm now seeing as a, as a live animal that's moving on the screen. It looks absolutely real. It's the best depiction of this animal I've ever seen. It's like, wow, we are knocking it out of the park. It's a very fortunate position to be in, to have an idea that you want to see realised, a story you want to be told, and spend years thinking about it and planning it and wondering how you might be able to do it. And then almost think that it's never going to happen because it's so difficult. And then suddenly the stars align and you have the chance to do it. And then when you actually finish it, it's not only as good as you hoped, but it's better than you hoped. It's, it exceeds all your expectations. And that is, that's a kind of a once in a lifetime experience. And this project has been like that. It's taken years and years and years of thinking and planning and cajoling people into potentially coming on board with this project. Because it is a risky one. You know, it's a, it's a risky thing to do. Making a, making a big landmark series about things that do not exist is a big leap of faith. But when it was finished, it's, it's a wonderful thing to just sit there and watch this and think that has come out of an idea that was had 10 years ago. In the next episode of Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast, we reflect on the series' highlights and what they tell us about the advances being made in this golden age of paleontology. 
And consider how our relationship and fascination with dinosaurs is today stronger than ever. This has been Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts and watch Prehistoric Planet on Apple TV+. All episodes are available now. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios Natural History Unit and hosted by me, Mike Gunton, with the Prehistoric Planet team. Our executive producers are Kate Taylor and Lee Bacon. The producers are Tiffany Cassidy, Bina Kutani and Tom Bonnet, with additional producing from Hannah Rogers. The engineer is Peregrine Andrews. Extracts from the television series narrated by David Attenborough. The main title music for Prehistoric Planet was composed by Hans Zimmer and Andrew Christie. Original music by Hans Zimmer, Andre Rosman and Carl Talvey for Bleeding Fingers Music. The score producers are Hans Zimmer and Russell Emanuel, and the score supervisors are Greg Rappaport and Marsha Bow. The music is performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales. <laughs>